Hello and welcome to Strangers Swapping Strangers, podcast number 52. A big welcome back to anyone who's returning and thanks for stopping in to anybody who's new this week. Well, this week's podcast with Nathan Duvall was such a blast. So much fun. Uh, We kick it off with a little hello and thank you to Deb Solomon, the woman behind Wall Street Dead Ahead Networking, and our friend that we met through. You know, I looked through the episode archives, and Nathan is the seventh guest that I've met through Deb. So needless to say, I've done some pretty amazing networking, and really all of those guests I am uh, still in touch with and consider friends. So I'm pretty sure Nathan is definitely not going to be the last. Nathan is a very articulate and animated storyteller. We hear all of the thoughts and meanings behind his five song picks, from his experiences at his first show in 1987, some wild camping stories from over that summer, and we talk about the smoking hot shows that were played in Brent's final years and uh, a lot of the, the feelings behind that. After the five song picks, we are treated to still a couple more incredible stories. The first one being an amazing family connection, and that led to the inspiration for the beautiful artwork chosen for today's podcast, an original creation by Antonio Renegro, friend of Deb's. I'll put his website on the blog. Such cool stuff. And the other leads us to a fascinating creation of a classic anthem that I'm really excited to share. This podcast is so full of fun and just killer tunes that all I can really say to sum it up is fuck yeah. So as always, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy and I will uh, catch you in a couple weeks. Nathan Duval, welcome to Stranger Shopping Strangers. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi, Stacey. Hi, this is so fun. I'm so excited that you are on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I love your show. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to share with you. I'm excited for everyone to hear. And I think before we even say anything, we have to give the biggest shout out to our sister, our friend, and the reason we've met, which is Deb. 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 And Deb, we trust. In Deb we trust. In Deb we trust. And we've met through Deb a couple times, but we just are coming off the most amazing event that she put on on Tuesday night, and it was just um, off the hook. It was beautiful. I was. I just talked to her on the phone yesterday to congratulate her, and the the space itself, 404, was was beautiful. The, um, I think I think everyone even got dressed up. They went a step further because it was such a just a amazing spot and all those white walls allowed for the visuals and yeah it was great it was just an amazing amazing night well shout out to all wall street dead ahead family and deb solomon woohoo yay and all the sponsors and everyone was there so good so fun thank you can't wait until next year awesome it is and you may i mean you make friends and you end up running around the country trying to catch up with each other it's so much fun I have never met a bad egg through Deb. I've never met a bad egg through Deb. She has the most amazing vetting process of human nature that I've ever come across. And she does. And she has. She has a great. She has a really good reputation within the the close knit actual Grateful Dead family. Uh, family. So you can meet so many interesting characters. I mean, the first event I went to, I met John Perry Barlow. I, I think I was in shock while I was talking to him. And then later, like the whole year afterward, I'm like, I met John Perry Barlow. I was talking to him about my favorite songs. 
it's it's uh and you know Jerry Lynn and all all the different characters um Cameron Cameron Sears I mean just on and on with all the people that you can meet uh yeah Trixie yeah I met I was shushed by Mountain Girl at a, yeah. a Rex Benefit show it was so it's much a, fun it's oh unbelievable God. and everyone's having fun you know it's yeah. just it's just chill and fun so so that is where we are coming off of but today we're gonna throw it back we're gonna throw it back to your story and. Uh, you know, usually I'd like to kind of start in the beginning. So, Nathan, tell me how you uh, started down this uh, crazy rabbit hole of uh, being a deadhead. I'm pretty lucky. My my parents met in 1965 in San Francisco. They they were at the University of or they were at San Francisco State. They started going to some of the first B-ins. They were just literally like get, uh, get-togethers in the park. And my mom was a huge uh, Janis Joplin. Um, uh, he's a Janis Joplin fan, and they they really instilled with me this this passion for music, and they had a great record collection. So over the years, um, until they got divorced, really, I was just obsessed with their rec- uh, record collection. And the the Grateful Dead was always there. Um, a lot of the like Quicksilver Messenger Service, a lot of the bands that came out of that uh, era, and like the Family Dog. We had this giant um, poster that was up on our wall. Um, it, was, it was a poster of San Francisco. And uh, it, was, it was an illustration, and it kind of showed. It had like um, the Fillmore and and the Family Dog Avalon Ballroom. They had all these locations throughout the city that were that were famous or icons um, uh, throughout the city. And so I would look at that picture, and there was a big like uh, you know Grateful Dead symbol. Like fl- there was a Jefferson airplane. There was this huge Jefferson airplane that was flying through the city, and so I would just stare at this picture and go, "Wow, what's a Jefferson airplane? And what are, you know who are the Grateful Dead? And what is all this stuff?" And and then later, as I as I became a teenager, I started to really understand the history and everything that that went into the scene from the '60s going into the '70s. And at the same time, it, you know, it's your parents' thing. So by the time I was like 16 or 17, I, I wasn't necessarily listening to that music anymore. And by the time I got to 18 and 19, I was definitely I'm like, oh man, the Grateful Dead, whatever, a bunch of old guys. And my friends uh, who went to, who were at UCSB at the time were like, just go, we're going to take you to the show. They're uh, Jerry's back from this coma, and it's really going to be amazing. You got to come. And I'm like, I don't want to go. And so they literally bought me a ticket. My buddy Howard Lair and Johnny Castle bought me a ticket for that first. It was a Friday night in April of '87 at Irvine Meadows, and they they're like, you're going to the show. We don't care what you have to say. They promised me that like, look, there's going to be like you know amazing drugs and open-minded women, and there's drum solos. You're a drummer. Go <laughs> go to the you're, show. You're going to get drums, you're going to get laid, and you're going to get high. So, Pretty you know much. what? Even if you don't like the music, just enjoy, you know, the chicks and getting high and the drums. And that was it. You're, you're know, good. Yeah, nothing exactly. to lose. You know, you're eight, I was 18 at the time, and I'm like, I'm like, all right, fine, I'll go. And so I went, and yeah, as soon as we – I always remember that, that first time like when we pulled into the parking lot and seeing, you know, seeing all these people throwing Frisbees and girls running around topless and – and uh, just the the insanity of it. And as soon as we got out of the car, like people were being friendly to you. I'm like, what is going on? I'm from L.A. Everyone's, you know, mean and tough and weird. I'm like, this is this is so strange. And, you know, people just uh, like the, you know, the stranger stopping strangers attitude, like just, you know, welcoming you into the scene. And, and that first weekend, we just had a, we had a great time. And, and uh, I think you'll hear that some of the songs are referenced. What I find funny is that. I, at the time, I couldn't even listen to reggae because it was too slow for me. I, I was listening to a lot of, of like metal and, and speed metal and punk, and, and I just everything had to be fast. I'm, I, was a, I, was a, I was still a kid, so I'm full of testosterone. 
and for you know for whatever reason it it really kind of like slowed me down and 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 kind of you know brought me to a, a you know a better place from being so fast and what was what I find funny is that when you listen to the show eyes of the world is the fastest eyes of the world you'll ever hear and i like to think that you know maybe you know my friends are just the there's a whole new generation of kids that started showing up in 87 and i do think we had something to do with that that we were so excitable and and so manic that they went, I mean, I, you can hear Jerry. They laughing. just revved it up to to like match the match the vibe of the scene. They were I, like, "I believe that absolutely." You can feel it's hilarious. I mean, I think at some point you can hear Jerry while he's trying to sing the lyrics. He laughs or he chuckles because he's like, "What is this? Like 160 RPM? What's going on? Like, it's really fast." And, uh, and yeah, anyway, I like to I like to believe you know yeah that somehow we affected him that night. Uh, but yeah, that's where we were. We were just, you know, a bunch of really revved up kids. And we, we definitely, we got a bad reputation for sure because we were part of that, um, in the dark crowd. And I know a lot of the older deadheads were not happy with us. And we didn't, you know, we didn't, it took a while to understand where we were, you know, in the, in the whole timeline of the Grateful Dead. We were just kind of, you know, understanding the song, the songbook and, and kind of figuring out where we fit in the scene. And we're just really pumped and excited. And a lot of people, a lot of older deadheads really took offense to that. And I know that there was, you know, within, the, I started to understand, I'm like, oh, okay, there are rules and etiquette here and don't just plow your way to the front, which is what we did. We just didn't know better. We, you know, and, uh, and, you know, for better or worse, I got, yeah, I learned a lot of etiquette and I became, you know, much better deadhead, as you might say, as, as the years went on. But yeah, we were part of that, you know, rebellious 87 crew that came in and just raised hell. Oh, I love it. I mean, I feel like I feel like there's so many different like chapters, um, you know, within the time of the Grateful Dead, and 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 there's this has been a topic so many times on the podcast, and you and I had just chatted about it. You know, it's the the Deadhead community, the spirit, the music. It it still goes on. You know, I mean, there's been some times that have been more more ebbs than flows, and I think right now we're in a, a really big flow time, which is amazing. But I always laugh because you know, me being in my 40s and seeing the Grateful Dead in, in the late 80s into the 90s, you know, we we come from that background and. The now the kids that you meet, I mean, you know, the same thing is going on now where, where people who saw the Grateful Dead or people who, you know, used to go in the 70s or the 80s, you know, they can't wrap their mind around these kids. And all I always think <laughs> back to is I was one of those kids, you know, it was you never saw Pigpen, you know, you weren't there in the <laughs> exactly. 70s. Like, the fuck do you know? You know, like, who are you? You're 16 years old. How do you possibly understand that, you know, what this is all about? And you know, and then I think we learned. We stopped and we listened and we learned, and then we did understand it. And now we're the old fucks, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm much more cognizant of that, and I I definitely put my best foot forward. In fact, at City Field, I met a bunch of kids that we kind of partied with, and I think they were around the same age. They were 19 or 20, and they were asking me questions, and they were much more polite than I was. And and I I, I told them that I'm like, hey, you guys are are much more mature and together than I was at, at your age. And, and, uh, you know, we really appreciate the fact that you're, that you're polite and, you know, and you're, um, you're mindful of, of your space and what you're doing. And yeah, it's great to see. I think, in fact, I would say that, that the, the generation coming up now that's going to see dead and company and all the offshoots are super polite and they're, they're really cool. I haven't, I haven't come across any, any of the, you know, uh, wildness that you saw, even in like that, that, you know, the, the disastrous 95 tour, um, I really haven't come across that at all. People have, have been really polite. 
Well, I love me. I call them the 21st century deadheads. I've had a, <laughs> I've had a handful of them on the podcast. I'm due to have a 21st century. It's been a little while, but I'll do a little shout out to Ian and Connor and, uh, Ben, if you guys are listening, and Eli, yay! Like, it's so fun. Woo! It's so fun hearing their stories and their experiences because they're, you know, and it's interesting. We'll go play Eyes of the World now, but Eyes of the World, I mean, that that song has been chosen. I know it was Connor's first song because it's just this, it's this cycle that repeats itself in generations and generations. And we come from all over the country, sometimes all over the world and all different generations. Yet you're there with all the people and the music and the smell, you know, the patchouli and the pot <laughs> and that, you know, the sweat, and you know, like just that, that smell. And it's the, yeah. And, and, and they play it and you're like, oh my God, I'm home. This is it. And uh, it's so special. And I love I love that, and I love hearing again all the different generations. And I, it, I love that you chose Eyes of the World because it's been a, you know, a lot of times this podcast have now come into how did you, you know, what was your first like intro and, uh, and just the whole, um, I don't know, the lyrics, the meaning. I mean, what the song is about just really lends itself to, you know, an an, awa- an awakening, right? Right, absolutely, and that, yeah, that, that, I, I don't think I really understood, I mean, maybe subconsciously I did while, you know, hearing that set, but definitely going back, um, when I look at that set on archive, I'm a, and I had so many of those songs that, that I uh, witnessed on that first show, I ended up seeing a lot later on, I thought that was really interesting, but yeah, you're right, and it's a, it's a perfect metaphor, and here, as you, as you segue into it, that this is the Eyes of the World uh, bluegrass speed metal version, <laughs> enjoy the tempo here. We are going to be throwing this back to Irvine on April 17th, 1987, Eyes of the World. Enjoy. Enjoy.
We are back from listening to Eyes of the World from April 1987. And, uh, you know, as the podcasts are a bit of a digital songbook to your life, I'm looking, the next one is in June 87. So that must have been a pretty intense couple of months. I want to hear a little bit about that. It was. And, you know, the, the more I look back on it, the more I'm, like, happy that everyone is alive and has their limbs. The, the, that whole, like, spring into summer, there was a lot of, like, 20th anniversary stuff going back to the summer of love 1967 so like six, or 87 and 88 there was a lot of reflection going on for uh, for older deadheads and, and just that that generation in general and it seemed like there was i mean there was a lot going on like in that in that springtime so we saw that show in uh, in at Irvine in 87 and i think that following tuesday was uh, the U2 Joshua Tree tour came through and so all these people you know bought they tons of LSD and then you know, saw the dead, and then like you know, two days, three days later, it's it's the Joshua Tree, and you're freaking out there. It, those those months were just so packed with with so many. I think the cult, and this is on and on, all these bands that were rolling through, and it was just one after the other, along with these sort of um, these acts that had been around a long time that were kind of being rediscovered by by our generation. And yeah, so it was super intense. And I'll say this: like I was. I I really started, you know, being like a, you know, a psycho cowboy somewhere around 16 or 17. So I was maybe I had 2 years experience and I was a little more experienced than some of my friends and they would generally look to me to like, okay, you're driving us out of the parking lot or or you're in, you know, you're in charge and we leave here to get to the hotel or friend's house or whatever. So so there's a ton of, you know, a ton of driving and we really cut our teeth on on how to be, you know, uh, as responsible as we as we can, you know, could and drive all around the state to see these shows. And so what happened is is yeah, we had I had this introduction to the Grateful Dead at the in, um, Irvine Meadows and and I'm like, wow, okay, I, I really like this. Um I want to go to the the um uh, Ventura um Ventura Fairgrounds show which was in in June of 87 a couple of months later. And that's that's around the time when I really started absorbing the songbook going, wow, okay, I really I need to know what's going on here. I can tell that there's a, a wealth of of music, and I just yeah, I, I, night and day I was listening you know, to the Grateful Dead and and a lot of other bands, and and what happened is the what was interesting is it turned out to be the last time the Grateful Dead played Ventura, and it it, it was just getting to the point where it, they were just getting overrun, especially in uh, Southern California because there were some and there's so many universities there. You had Irvine, UCSB, USC, UCLA, and there's this whole wave of kids that were being turned on. By probably, I mean, probably by you know, touch of grain in the dark. That definitely was like a touchstone. And these sure. kids are, yeah, and the, yeah, and you've got like the 20th anniversary, and so people are like, you know, what the fuck is going on? And and that was the that was really the last time that they could have this sort of quaint get together in Ventura. It was <laughs> what was awesome was that the the Ventura um, Fairgrounds is this giant like racetrack type thing, and it it uh, was overlooked by the Holiday Inn. There was like a I don't know 12 story Holiday Inn that faced the fairgrounds. And so everyone would try and, you know, vie for that perfect position with the balcony facing the fairgrounds. And then they would hang these giant tie dyes. And so we all descended on this place on, on the Friday night. And I, I made the stupid mistake. I got there Friday night and uh, someone sold me some acid at like two in the morning. And I'm like, well, I just want to make sure it's good. And so we tried it. <laughs> Not, you know, again, like you're learning, you know, what, to do, what not to do. That's definitely something not to do. And, um, but I did it. And the, the, what I learned from it was, um, 
was that number one thing was that, you know, if you if you do something like that in the middle of the night, you know, and you don't take care of yourself water wise or uh, stay hydrated or really understand your energy level, you're probably not going to be worth much later in the afternoon. And the upside of that, though, is that uh, what happens, I really started to come on about like uh, sunrise and I was walking around the village and I, I got to see people waking up in the morning. Uh, you know, opening kind of like, yeah, the whole eyes of the world metaphor, opening up their, their tent and they'd walk out and they'd see me walking around. <laughs> and I think I said good morning to everyone who woke up out of their, t- I would personally walk up. I'm like, good morning. I, I, my name is Nathan and good morning. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, and I'm sure they were thrilled to have you wake up to say good morning too. You know, I mean, it's like the one environment where everyone's just like, yeah, there's a, you know, the, the welcome wagon has come by, but nobody even thought it was strange at all. Exactly. They, and they, I think someone served me breakfast and I couldn't, I, you know, I think at one point I was crying. I was like, thank you so much for these eggs. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe like how friendly people were because I'm just used to like a harder edged, uh, you know, town or, you know, upbringing in LA. And so I was just like, wow, these people are so friendly. And what was lucky about it. And when you, when I look back on it is that there were only, they had this, this camping experience and then Calaveras County went on that same year, which was a, a legendary show. I didn't, I didn't get to that one. And then the following year was the last time in 88, um, at, um, in uh, Laguna Seca. Laguna Seca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was the last. That was the last real camping, um, you know, show they had in California, because it just got overrun, and, and that's what happened here in '87. Was that we, sh- you know, we showed up on Friday, and <laughs> you, yeah, you had me running around in the morning, you know, saying good morning to everybody, and then we noticed by like nine or ten, there were there were people everywhere. There were people like you know vagrant type deadheads sleeping in the bushes. And you'd see these families, and we felt, I felt so bad, because you'd see these families who were out there for their, you know, they were probably from the Midwest or something, and oh, hey, you know, this is our big vacation, our family vacation, and they'd come out, and there's like a guy changing his underwear near the pool, and yeah. people coming out of the woodwork, and they just horrified, and, and you're like, hey, man, good morning, um, and that that did not so adhere awesome. them to the locals. No, it's so awesome. Well, it's like, and I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking my sister, who was on the podcast, hey, Michelle. I'm so. Who was, hey, Michelle. Her first show was Laguna Seca doing oh, the wow. camping show. And then her next one was Calaveras County. So I, it's funny. I think I always, at some point in time, I feel like I used to pretend that I was at the Laguna Seca and the Calaveras counties because I'm a little sister and that's just what little sisters do is <laughs> they hijack their big sisters like lives, you know? So when people would like talk about counting how many shows or when did they first go, I think there was a point in my life where I pretended that I was at those shows even though I sure, wasn't because sure. I was just the jealous little sister that was home behind. I was in eighth grade and she was a senior in high school. So she's four years older than I and, uh, and I kind of jumped on the next year. But I love hearing about, you know, these camping shows because I was I was there vicariously watching Michelle go off with her friends and have this great time. And there was just no place I would have rather been, you know, than to be with my big sister and all her cool friends. And I was getting turned on to the music at the time. And I was, you know, I was 13, eighth grade. And there was no fucking way that I was going to be allowed, nor did she want her eighth grade, you know, 13-year-old sister to be joining as well. But I thought I was there. I thought, you know what, like, she's there, I'm there, we're all equals, let's let's make this happen. And uh, so I feel like I was there, even though I absolutely was not. 
And uh, and the last thing I have to laugh about when you're talking is I always would giggle for years after when the San Francisco Chronicle would come and they'd have the pages with all the things that are going on, all the shows. And when the, the Grateful Dead would come to town, it would be the only ad that would show up that would say, no camping, <laughs> no camping, you no know, camping. and I just went without any, you know, like any other band that would be coming through the Bay Area. It would just be the band. They'd be playing at Cal Expo. They'd be playing at Shoreline and they would have their ad. And then the Grateful Dead and big, bold, no camping, camping. <laughs> you know, like we just let us just say this one more time. No fucking camping, you dirty hippies, you know, but like every other band would just be like, yeah, so-and-so is playing it. Sting's coming to the Oakland Coliseum <laughs> or whatever. And there's a request. If you guys were Eric Clapton is coming. Like cool bands too, you know. And it'd just be like, yeah, Eric Clapton is going to be playing at the Oakland Coliseum in November. The Grateful Dead's coming. No camping. It, was, it would say, in fact, on the tickets. I remember the Ticketmaster tickets. It would say no camping vending. You know, no camping slash vending in bold, just to yeah. you know, drive it home. Yeah, so no, crazy. it's just mass people. No, absolutely. But, uh, well, I'm glad you got to experience it. And I like to pretend I experienced it. So we're going to pretend that I did as well. There you um, go. <laughs> again, what little sister doesn't like to hijack their older sister's experiences? So um, in my mind, I was really there. But right. And it makes for more fun conversations when you know, you're in the dark in a backyard. You're like, oh, yeah, I was there. Calaveras County, 87. Ah, totally. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, it was totally cool. Yeah, yeah, we did mushrooms. It was awesome. No, I, I was in eighth grade. Yeah. You know, I have a pretty, I don't know, I'm pretty good with memory. I don't, I think at the time too, I wasn't drinking a lot, which would probably help. Um, you know, you do psychedelics and as a kid, you couldn't afford to do a lot of drinking or anything like that. And I, I do have this one clear memory, like before we get to the song, I know this is a, this is a different show, but um, that Laguna Seca show in 88, or that weekend, they played with Los Lobos, which I think was yeah. the first time I saw Los Lobos. And I, well, I saw it both times. I saw the end of their set. I really make most of it. But one thing I do remember clearly was being on the, uh, I guess it would be stage, uh, stage right, like facing the left side of the stage. At Laguna Seca, they had a, there was, it was sort of like in a natural amphitheater. So on both sides of the stage, there would be a hillside. And on the hillside, on stage right, people, there was a, a kite flying area. <laughs> and you could, That's awesome. You could go over there and like, well, you could ask somebody, you know, if they, if they let you, you know, share their kite with them or you could just sit there. And, and we were sitting there watching the kites flying and we heard this, this uh, motorcycle, this dirt bike tearing up the side of the hill. And I'm like, what the fuck? Is, who, who would try, who would be able to do that? And we're looking and we're and then we see the guy pull up right next, like he's about, I don't know, 30 feet from us stops and he looks over at us and I kind of look at him like, God, he looks familiar. And he kind of shakes his head. I'm like, wait a minute. And I point at him. I go, hey. I'm like, that's Bill Graham. And I look at him. And I wave. And he looks at me. He doesn't smile. He just he looked at me. and He kind of shook his head. And then and then drove off. And and looking back on it, I I know what he was thinking. He was looking at us. And he was going, that's it. This whole this is over. What you're looking at and what you're experiencing is done. And, right. and I didn't you know I didn't really get the breadth of it and how meaningful it was. And I feel so lucky that I got to just. I, I've done that a lot in my um, musical history. I show up right at the end, whether it's Jane's Addiction or, or The Grateful Dead or whoever it might be. I, I tend to show up right at the end of a scene. I'm like, oh, this is amazing, and it's gone. <laughs> Damn it. But I do feel really lucky that I got to see that. Uh, we, I mean, because we have a history, too, in our family. My mom, my mom wrote Bill Graham at some point. She had a bad experience at, uh, at the Fillmore, and she wrote him and said, you know, whatever it was. And he sent her free tickets uh, later saying, hey, I'm sorry for your 
um, you know, your bad experience. And because he was always so customer service minded, he, he gave me these tickets. And my mom always talked about that, saying Bill Graham is a, it was a decent businessman and a decent human being. And, and getting to see him like that, and I ended up talking to him later on, years later, um, at some of the shows, uh, I told him, I, I said, I told, you know, I saw, I saw him. He's like, yeah, he's like, I, you know, I don't know if that's what I was thinking at the moment, but yes, that you are right. That, that I was definitely feeling that in my heart that we'll never see that we'll never experience this kind of community again. And kind of like, yeah, Hey kid, you just don't understand what you're missing. And now looking I'm back, I do. And I'm so thankful that I got to see the village and people living in teepees and, and all that. It was, it was really magical. And I, I feel so lucky. That's awesome. Well, let's go back. Let's, uh, we don't all get to go to the, well, no, we're not going back to Laguna Seca, but we're going to go back to Ventura, which it sounds like is a, another segment of the, uh, the magical time and, uh, some similarities there. And you chose Hell in a Bucket. So tell us a little bit about that pick. It's, it's my favorite song. And I mean, I love, I mean, I love so many songs like, you know, uh, the other one or Stella Blue or whatever it might be, but, but this song is, I guess, it's just more uh, speaks to my uh, generation of kids that that started um, up there in '87, and that's I think that's why I chose it. And I just I love the and I love the theme too that you know no matter how bad it is or what's going on, if you can find a way to enjoy yourself in that moment, you know at least you're enjoying the ride, no matter Absolutely. how how fucked up it is. And it's and it's a fast song. And it's a fast song. <laughs> that's what I was just thinking. Like I definitely uh it's definitely a high speed up rocking, you know, shaking rocking song. So that plays into that for and sure. This, and this version this version is particularly good and this is the I um the, uh, the other reason too is that this is this was the first show where I really started to understand the songs. Like I'm Warf Rat was big on this one. Um they do a, a Scarlet Fire and I really started to understand um, you know, the arrangements. I was, start, I was really starting to sink in. And the on the, and on this version of Hell in the Bucket, you got the ending is so much fun because they're they're really playing with the audio. Um, the the house sound guys are messing with with Bobby's vocals, and it's really fun. So check out the ending. Sounds good. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go into play. And this is this is from June fourteenth, nineteen eighty seven. So uh, everybody, we're going to Hell in a Bucket, but at least we're enjoying the ride. <laughs>
Well, back from listening to Hell in a Bucket, uh, I'm looking at the next song that we're going to discuss, and uh, I, we are going to be taking it down a couple of notches from the uh, the high-paced energy. And this is less about a show, but more about a song. So, so tell us a little bit about the next choice. Sure. So this is Althea, and I know that um, with John Mayer's uh, you know obsession with a song, it's definitely become a, a, touch, a touchstone of late. And with this song, this is—I think it's another one of those subconscious things where I—I I took it in because the the title is uh, is also the name of my my godmother, um, my aunt Althea. And so when I I heard the lyric come up, I'm like, oh hey, you know, I have an I have an aunt Althea, and she uh, she really meant a lot to me. She was a, a special person, and she was at one point um, she was married to the I think the second or the first top LSD producer in uh in the country and and then you know her life changed when he ended up going to prison and it was it was pretty challenging for her she was dogged by the irs and she definitely had a, had a tough life um after that period but she was she was always because she was my godmother she was always open with me she was a, uh, she was a lesbian and she she just opened my mind to a different way of thinking a different way of approaching life and so when i first heard this song I, it definitely you know kind of hit me but i didn't really take it in uh, fully until later, I'd say like uh, maybe it was without a net when I when I heard that version, it all kind of clicked, and then I went back to this um, to this show in '87, and I realized I'm like, yeah, wow, this song has always been here and been with me, and I said, I guess that's one of the reasons I love it so much is that it it's a it's a thoughtful, sweet song, and Jerry just kind of you know taking you on a walk down down the road, and it just makes me feel good, and I love my aunt Althea, so I'd like to I'm sending this out to her wherever she she may be in the cosmos, um, go Jerry. Sounds good. No, I love this song too. And this song is one of those songs that I love that there's so much, um, there's so much interpretation when you talk to people about it. Cause I think, you know, there's a story that's being told. And I think that, but in the classic, you know, Robert Hunter, Jerry Garcia ways, it's a story, but it's, um, it's, it's open to a lot of different interpretations. You know, who yeah. is he talking about? And you can tell that there's definitely some heartache and there's love and there's, you know, there's looking, you know, obviously looking for direction and figuring things out, but, but who's asking who, what, and who's, you know, is, um, I don't know. It's all, you know, it's all very cloudy and you can kind of come out of it, whatever you put into it. Exactly. That's, that's what makes a great song is the ability for the listener to choose their own point of view. And it's rare because you usually have a song that's a little more explicit. And just like you said, Robert Hunter gives you the opportunity to approach it, at, like you said, as it could be a lover, it could be a family, it could be a friendship, it could be just about anything, the, how you want to apply it. And that's what makes it, that's why it continues to, to be loved because you, you have all these different points of view. Oh, absolutely. And I, I've used it as a meme before. I'm a big, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if I've admitted this on the uh, podcast before, but I mean, it's something to admit. I, it's something I truly love is I'm a big Bravo fan. Andy Cohen, if you're ever listening, hey now, like super Bravo, super fan. And uh, so for Bravo. a little while about, hey, I love my Bravo TV. And uh, for a little while, I got obsessed with making uh, Bravo Housewives memes. <laughs> and uh, this song had so many good lyrics for it. Um, I mean, you know, you may be a clown in the burying ground or just another pretty face. I mean, that was, that was, I mean, it's classic Bravo Housewives, <laughs> like gold within this song. I think I ended up with, uh, with one whose name I won't mention, but uh, one of the beautiful housewives that I follow was uh, honest to the point of recklessness, self-centered to the extreme. Nice. 
and it just Perfect. works, you know, Perfect. it just works. And uh, it's coming from a place of love and devotion. I mean, I have to say, after the Deadhead community, Andy Cohen and Bravo Television is probably like, you know, number two to <laughs> hours of entertainment that they've given me. So, yeah, no, it's a juxtaposition, you know, like it's like the light is the is the dead community and like the yang and the yang and then the other side is you know all things bravo and uh <laughs> andy cohen's awesome he's a great host I love him. Ah, he's amazing yeah. i mean then there's a lot of us out there so for anyone who's listening to this podcast and they they listen and they want to reach out send me an email i call us unicorns like there's a big group of us the uh the bravo super fan deadheads it's this really <laughs> bizarre juxtaposition but we're out there like we are so i, I mean anyone listening please let me know because there's just nothing more special than someone i could toggle conversations between what's happening on the housewives and uh what's happening on tour you know it's uh, that's <laughs> funny that's awesome all right well let's go play this and then we will be back because we have a, a couple more a couple more songs to uh to discuss so we're uh we're staying put in uh june 14th 1987 for this one yes take it away yeah yeah, so we're still we're still in Ventura, but we're just we're going down another path. So everybody enjoy and we'll be back. Woohoo. Oh, I'm the 
listening to Althea and uh, we're going to hop down the road a couple years to uh, June of 1990 
and uh, you selected Mama Tried. So tell us a little bit about this pick. It's a it's a burning set, and personally, where I was at this point was um, I had a I had my first real girlfriend. She was near, I think, graduating UCLA, or no, she's probably midway through UCLA. And we had a friend who was graduating the next day. So I can't remember why or how we, but we're like, we've got to get to the show um, up at Shoreline. And so we, we went up. It was one of those, you know, wild rides. We just drove overnight and got there and um, got a ticket and we're up there on the lawn. And it just happened to be one of those, one of those magical sets. I didn't, I mean, I, I mean, I thought I was at the time. And, and by then I'm like, I guess I'm like three years in. So I know that, yeah, sure, there's some moment you're having a great time with your friends and maybe they're not playing at their top or their best. And it just seems that way. And, you, you know, you listen back to the show and go, OK, well, maybe I was I was much, you know, in a much happier place than the band was. But this was definitely where, where you know, the stars aligned. They um, the I guess what's what's pretty heart wrenching about this is that this is the second to last show that Brent played um, in California. And it was I mean, especially when you, when I look back on this as some as someone who's more of a, a matured uh, music producer is that I really understood how valuable he was in the band. He during this first set, that's where uh, Mama Try comes from. He he's just he's on fire and he's always at the center of the vocals, you know, the harmonies. He's he's holding everything down and you can hear where Jerry kind of goes flat or where he's kind of losing it or where Bobby might hit things too sharp and he's always there in the pocket. Brent is holding the whole thing down and singing with all this emotion. <laughs> Ironic, he's not singing much on this on this song, but what I like about this is I, I was also starting to learn about country and about Merle Haggard, and I didn't really understand you know that whole songbook. And I would definitely say that the Grateful Dead opened my eyes to, to country music and to to bluegrass and and all sorts of different music that I didn't really know. And and Mama Tried was definitely one of the first songs where I was like, wow, so what's this whole country thing about? I love this story. And I mean, I've read that that. Um, that Billy wasn't so into the into the the cowboy songs as he called them, but they were fun and and especially if it was a hot day, like you just felt like you were out there in the, the dusty old west. And um, anyway, this I would definitely say you can like go to YouTube and check out this song on you on you or check out this um, uh, both sets on YouTube because you can see the interplay between Jerry and Brent. They're so happy, like they are genuinely you know upbeat. At the same time, you can see Brent is struggling. He his eyes are popping out of his head and he he definitely looks messed up but he he's in love with the songs and he's holding everything down and and the more the more I read about it the more I read about this time period I really come I've come to understand why Jerry had such a decline because he did really feel that when Brent died that he may have lost the band that that was their final high mark and and I know a lot of people, you know, that you could argue about this all, you know, till the end of time. But I, I really, in my, you know, in my heart of hearts, I can understand why Jerry would feel that way because they never did really recover vocally after he died. It, it was so tight. And, and after that, the, you know, they were out there on their own. And, and if they made mistakes, there was no one there to, to hold them down. So check, yeah, check out this, check out both sets. And then if you don't, if you're not familiar with country music or the songbook, this is a great entry, uh, Mama Tried. Uh, no, I, no, I, I yeah, yeah, such a special time. And I mean, I think about the relationship and I've, you know, talked to many people, obviously, and, you know, really given a lot more thought in the last year or so. And I mean, where there's pain, there's beauty. And I feel like at the yeah. end, like with the without a net and at this time, I mean, he was in so much pain. And with that came just this passion of the singing. And I think another, you know, from my perspective and pulling everything together, not my perspective from the time, but in, you know, archiving the situations. 
I think, you know, both of them using and both of them, you know, having that, that addiction, it's like, it's this dirty secret that you share that creates this brotherhood together. And I think watching, you know, Brent go through that, I'm sure it was heart wrenching because it's got to have put a bit of a mirror up for him as well. Right. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. You, you share this and you're bringing so much pain and so much passion. And then to see Brent, you know, come to an end with it. I mean, I, I can't imagine how that wouldn't just, you know, mortally be wounding. That's a really good point. I don't, I, it's funny. I, I, it's not funny, but I, I don't go there a lot because it does, that does hurt so much. And you're absolutely right. You're, he does, I mean, at the core of it, you're right that that's, that probably has a lot to do with their friendship or their, their kismet on stage. And I just, I, I just, at the it, end, yeah. probably not the whole relationship, oh, no. but I just think at the yeah. end, you know, like that's something that they were, you know, again, that's something they were, they were doing, they yeah. were both, it was part of their, their, you know. Doing. You have to admit it. It's not something you can, you can gloss over. And I, I do think it gets a little bit glossed over. And at the same time, just like you said, there, you know, the, the, the beauty that comes out of that pain and sure they, they were both going down a, um, a similar road there, yet they would get on stage and, and regardless of the of the chemicals that were going on, they they did have this musical relationship where, like you could tell, like Brent would do things with his shoulders. He would he would um, shake them, and Jerry would take those as signals. And I I was always you really notice it on these these videos where the camera is just on is focused you know with them on stage. You can see everything. And I mean when we were out there in the in the crowd, it's it's not so visible. But when I go back and watch this, I'm like holy shit. They're they're taking music cues physically without using their eyes necessarily. They're I mean, without like looking at each other necessarily in the eyes. They would they would move their bodies or Jerry would Jerry if Jerry didn't like something he turned his back on you and you're pretty you're pretty <laughs> clear you're like oh fuck that you know or whatever and and you can see like between like they're smiling through most of the set they're laughing they're laughing at, at some of the the things they do they flub a lyric here or there and but through most of this like Bobby's kind of. Bobby is just sort of being really, you know, kind of, I want to say he's like being pretend, but he's just so, he feels so important. He's so into it. And then finally Brent and Jerry break him down and he starts laughing at some point. It's so fun that, that the set is so much, that set was so much fun. Oh, well, I, I'm going to check the whole thing out and I, and I'm sure I was there. I remember being, I mean, I remember <laughs> being there. I don't remember the set. Like I don't remember it to the extent of remembering the, the, the actual, I don't know. I couldn't tell you a thing about it except that I remember it was the summer solstice shows, right? They were a summer solstice in um, Shoreline and it was right around, yeah, right after we got out of school. So I am sure I was there. That was my, that was the stomping grounds was, uh, you know, Shoreline 1990. No way I wasn't there. That's awesome. Woohoo. So, all right, let's uh, let's go. Let's uh, listen to Mama Try, the song I identify with very much as a mom. And uh, we'll come back with uh, one more story and one more song. Ooh, take it away. Thank you. 
Shoreline in 1990, and we're not in a full um, time sequence. We have one more song, and we're going to go back to 89, and uh, tell us a little bit about your your final pick to play. This one is a summer solstice show, and I remember this was being uh, it was broadcast on on FM. Um, it was probably like uh, God, I can't remember the name of that um, show right now, but they had they had like a national syndicated um, show, and it was yeah, it was, so it was on summer solstice. It was hot as Fuck, and I remember it was. They had some sort of problem too with uh, the onstage mix, and they. I think the power went out twice, right? Like right as they were getting started, and you know they, they were very impatient. They were getting kind of frustrated, and, and then finally when it got when it got going, it was a. I mean, it was, it was another one of those. Just they were on fire, like a front loaded type of set, and uh, this ver- uh, this version of Cassidy. I think this was around the time too that I was really starting to understand the uh the meaning of the song and definitely like to send this out to both Cassidy and Cameron who I I met for the first time uh Cassidy Law and Cameron I met them at the uh at the Rex Foundation benefit last year in San Francisco and I I, in fact I was standing at the bar I I had just met Mountain Girl or she did she had shushed me because I was being too loud and uh, so I talked to her a bit and then um this other woman started talking to me she thought I was funny and she, and I'm like, hey, my name's Nathan. And she said, my, my name's Cassidy. And I'm like, I'm, I said, I'm like, the Cassidy? And she, she smiled and I'm like, and said, yeah, that's me. And, and she says, you know, I'm like, yeah, I know, I know you're, and it's a combination. I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, make you feel uncomfortable. I'm just, you know, just great to talk to you. And so I got to talk to her for a little bit and, and Cameron, I didn't even know they were married and then found out later that they, you know, that they were married. And that's, so with, yeah, with this song, it, it also uh, was a favorite between me and my girlfriend at the time. And we'd love to dance to that song. And I'm a huge, like, you know, Neil Cassidy fan. So the, the fact that, that, uh, this song kind of fuses these two, pe- these two people and, and means so much to, to the Grateful Dead family really meant a lot to me. And I, I started to understand that right around this time. And it just has to be a really good version. Jerry, 
Jerry tears it up. And in fact, back to that, that comment about Brent and Bobby, Brent is fucking solid. He, he sings his guts out and, and really helps Bobby, you know, bring it home on this version. So I, I, I love it. I love it. And I love this era. I mean, all of, you know, it's our era. So, you know, we are of this era. Yeah. You know, there's so many different eras and, and, and we are the Brent era almost, you know, what I like to say, like the, 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 the kids that came up and, yeah, these late 80s, early 90s. And one of my favorite to listen to is Without a Net yeah. over and over and over. And I think that as far as accessible Spotify, you know, rolling through it, I think that might be my favorite Cassidy out there just for yeah, um, not, the, not of all Cassidy's ever made, but just the accessibility aspect of rolling it through on Spotify, <laughs> you know, like it's but the ones that I can just like, you know, pick, choose, listen, press play, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Um, but it's that same time. I mean, it's um, it's so beautiful. And uh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I, I'm in 100%. Well, let's go play this. Woo! And then I want, woohoo. And then I have, we have one other little special bonus story and song. And uh, so, uh, so don't leave, even though this is a super long podcast because we're having <laughs> so much fun talking, everyone. Yay. Be sure to stay tuned. Enjoy.
But you're left to see by its own design Nothing to tell now But the words be yours I'm done listening to Cassidy and and the, I mean this this podcast could be three hours because we've barely even scratched the surface of the songs right of like your stories I mean we've got some good stories and songs in but uh but you just recently uncovered something amazing um that I've learned about and I want you to share this story um because it's it's really special it's it's a mind blower and it's worth it those of you that are they're listening right now it's I mean especially it's like a you know sort of like a fantasy type story but uh, the the quick of it is this: is that I, I was estranged from uh, from the, my dad's side of the family. My mom and dad got divorced in the '70s, and so 
my aunt and my cousins, I wasn't really uh, close with. In fact, I didn't really have any contact with them much until this year, uh, back in um, April. I was uh, I was listening to my little Grateful Dead playlist, jogging along, and I started getting texts from my uh, my cousins, and and they finally they called through, and they're like, hey, you know, um, our mom died, and your aunt Betty uh, has died, and and we really we feel bad about everything that's happened. Would you please come to the funeral? We'd, we'd like to try and make it up to you and and bring you into the family, and we're, we're so sorry. And so I'm like, well, that's interesting. I'm listening to Feel Like a Stranger right now when you call me. And I'm like, all right, there's probably some weird Grateful Dead connection. You know, I'll, just, I'll go. I'll put my best foot forward. You never know. I might learn something about why I don't really get along with that side of the family. I'm like, all right. So I, I go to the event, and I'm wearing a, a poncho I bought. That's a, it's like a Steal Your Face California flag uh, fusion. And this, uh, this older woman comes, walks up to me, and she says, uh, do you know your Aunt Betty's connection to the Grateful Dead? And, and well, no, first, first she says, like, are you dead? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm definitely dead. And she says, do you know your, their connection? And I'm like, no, what, you know, what's that? And then she proceeds to tell me that, that Jerry Garcia was my aunt's best man at her first wedding. And that's, that's how she starts out. And I was like, well, well, wow. And I'm like, and I'm like, how, I'm like, how did that happen? And she said, well, she was known as queen of the chateau. And I'm like, well, I'm like, you mean the, the chateau, the, Broke down Palace Menlo Park thing that and the, yeah she at at one point in around 1960 she uh, her her job was to kind of facilitate everyone uh, all their sleeping arrangements within that like communal living space there in Menlo Park and and she had you know various relationships with with uh, Robert Hunter and Jerry and a lot of other, I mean it was a it was a communal thing everyone's fucking everybody and going crazy and and one of her one of her her main responsibility apparently was to uh, be in charge of the benzos or the speed that they kept in some giant like uh, vase or something, and that was that was sort of her job. And and then she became pregnant. The, uh, she and, and the guy that um, that she got together with uh, decided they were going to move out and um, get married. And Jerry ended up uh, taking her space. So he was living in the in a car on the property, and so she moved out. He moved in. And and then they got married. And really, what was interesting from that point on, she kind of cut her ties. And we think that I mean, I I put it together with my cousins that we think that she she did show up at an um, at a show somewhere in the 70s and kind of you know just said hello. But that was really it. She and she was never she wasn't like a, a hardcore fan or something that like that. She was more of a friend that that saw all these guys, you know, these people in their, in their formative years and then didn't really feel the need to like be a hanger on or a follow or follow or anything like that. She just, you know, she had her time and then, and then she, you know, kind of cut her ties and raised her, she ended up, you know, having uh, three children. So she raised her family and, and lived in a, a quiet life in Santa Cruz. And so the, the whole beauty of the moment though was, yeah, was finding all this out and, and, uh, and then looking through her, her music collection and seeing that she liked the same music that I did, all these weird esoteric albums. And it helped me because I didn't really feel connected to my family at all. I'm like, I don't understand. I feel adopted sometimes. And then I'm like, oh, okay, my Aunt Betty, I get it. All right. And, that's uh, it. Yeah. This is the connection. And you know what? I've got to tell you, like, I, you know, I learned about this story um, on a post that you made, and we talked about it the other day. As you're telling the story, and you said it was April – so early May, it was uh, like May 10th, maybe. And maybe that was when you just went to the funeral. And it goes back to our first conversation with Deb. I was staying at Deb's house in New York. I was out for a, I went to a relics conference and I was staying over there and you called her at like, oh, yeah. I don't know, like 11 or something maybe. And you had just 
found all of this out. It was right. It was in early May and I was at her house and you were, you were so excited and like talking about it. And I was like, and she like had the call and kind of put her hand by the phone and was like, you know, I've got, I'm, I'm going to take this. <laughs> and I think I ended up going to bed while you guys were still talking. It was kind of like the end of the day, end of the night. And we were kind of just, you know, going to sign off and go to bed. And so it's so cool, like so surreal and full circle that, um, yeah, when you had first discovered this and was sharing it, it was, uh, I was, I was there like putting on pajamas <laughs> while you were sharing That's, that's what's so cool about this community. I, I can't say enough about it, like uh, being part of the, the Wall Street Dead Ahead crew. After the big reunion in 2015, I just felt, I was like, I've got to connect with more people. And, and once I got into the family here, I'm like, oh my God, there's, there's so many other people, like you're saying, people, you know, of, of our generation in general that I can, and, and younger that I can connect with and are as, as obsessive and crazy and, and talk fast and are, you know, willing to crisscross the country and all that. And, and to, yeah, to be able to share this with her. And, and then she, she put me in touch with, with Tony and Tony Rio Negro, Antonio uh, Rio Negro, who's a, you know, Grateful Dead artist and did a lot of the, the backstage uh, passes and, and merchandise and stuff that, or shirts that, that they used in the, um, in the 80s. Um, yeah, he he designed the shirt for the family called uh, this called Queen of the Chateau. He he kind of created a uh, uh, you know a likeness type um, uh, portrait uh, portraiture of her and with, you know multicolor. And it's just a beautiful shirt with a, just a small amount of, of Grateful Dead iconography, and it's beautiful. And so we're we're, make, we're printing those shirts for the family and my uh, my my own family, and, and they're they're just so stoked. And the whole thing is a you know, miracle. It's beautiful. It is so beautiful, and it's so beautiful again to like hear you tell the story and feel like inside because it was before we ever met. Because I think I met you in June, so I remember the next morning being like, "Who was that? Who was that guy?" You know, because you was on the phone and you were so excited and talking, and I could kind of hear you talking but couldn't hear the story, and you did it, it all just come together. And uh, she, you know, gave me like a brief download of it, but um, no, it's all it's all very cool and a little all full circle. But we are still not done. We have one more conversation. And this is how you titled your email with the links. And I would be remiss if we didn't, like, go back and talk about this and, and do one more little special song. So the connection between the Lord of the Rings. So please share. Sure. I, I, I titled our email, How the Grateful Dead Influenced the Lord of the Rings Trilogy. And that's, you know, it might be a little hyperbole, but it is it is true because I, like, like we've been talking about, my formative years were were spent, you know, chasing the Grateful Dead around and, and a lot of, and then, you know, a little later, a lot of the bands of, um, of our generation. And, but what I, what I specifically learned from the Grateful Dead was, and what also gave me confidence was the ability to understand where the emotion lies in a song and how to amplify it. Like sometimes, you know, you come out of a show and, and you, you've got a melody in your mind. It might be terror, you know, da, 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 da. And that section of the song, like it's this hook, or a, or a solo, whatever it might be, is just absolutely ingrained and imprinted, you know, on your heart. And I learned that going to those shows because you'd come out humming those songs and having these connections. And I also, I, I did start to understand how people were listening, uh, band members were listening to each other. And I, and then I would take this and I'd make my wacky mixtapes of all sorts of different types of music. And I'd go into the parking lot and I would act them out. I would literally dance out these songs and people would watch me and, and ended up, I ended up like uh, creating a, my own little like tape community. And that led me to have the confidence to be a professional drummer and then a, a music producer 
music supervisor. And this, all of that kind of led me eventually, all that knowledge that I gained led me to establishing the music department at the Ant Farm. Uh, during the uh, early 2000s, it, it was the preeminent motion picture advertising, or I should say media advertising firm. And we did everything. We were, you know, we were doing movies, video games, TV shows, uh, just about any kind of, uh, or in, in some cases, uh, sports and or sports and lifestyle advertising. But I, I, what I took was all this um, knowledge I gained from um, listening to the Grateful Dead and, and experiencing the shows, and then just condensing it and realizing, okay, I don't have you know eight minutes or more to to articulate my story. I just have to take all the emotion um, from a specific part of a song and adapt it to thirty seconds, to a minute and a half, to two and a half minutes. And um, what happened is I, I went on to become the the music uh, producer and supervisor for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I worked on a specific uh, or with a specific team for Peter Jackson. And if the, that, the, the whole, that's a long story, but in, the short of it is it's just a miracle because that doesn't happen very often where a director has that kind of juice to just run the show. And so I, I would take what I learned out of, out of Uncle John's band, like the, you know, the solos going out of, out of that song. Um, and I would just, all right, I, you know, we, we love this song. We're going to, we're going to take all the emotion and we're going to, you know, encapsulate it in about 30 seconds or a minute and a half. And um, the big song that came out of, of Lord of the Rings was Requiem for a Tower. And Requiem for a Tower is based on Clint Manziel's Requiem for a Dream, um, that, that main theme from that movie. And so I took all that knowledge and, and we adapted that song with a group of composers. And it became the, the, probably the most profitable, one of the biggest uh, songs to ever come out of the trailer industry. It, it went on to uh, most sports franchises, I mean, the Olympics, NFL, MLB, I mean, you name, you name the Wimbledon, you name it, it's been licensed uh, to major franchises and organizations, and it's gener you know, generated close to $6 million. Uh, and, and again, that, that came from um, that, that experience. And, and so it, and I, I built on that from there and decided, all right, you know, my, one, of my, uh, favorite, you know, one of my favorite bands is Led Zeppelin, I'm going to go after Kashmir. And, and so I took all that knowledge that I, I learned from, from the Lord of the Rings experience I put it in the song that you're about to play, which I consider like if I were to die tomorrow, I'm like, I would feel okay in that I was able to express myself to the absolute fullest potential. Um, this is the uh, London Symphony Orchestra, um, basically the Star Wars Orchestra, uh, Damian Marley, Bob's youngest son, uh, singing new inspirational lyrics, got to have stamina, and uh, members, some members of Guns, Guns N' Roses on it too. And we just, wow. it's the same idea. Like we, we just condensed all of the, all of the emotion in Kashmir and we, we brought it down to two minutes and 30 seconds, gave it an ending. And this song has gone on to generate about a million and a half. Um, that was very happy. Um, it was, it was, uh, it's been used in, in a bunch of campaigns, but, um, this version has not been licensed, um, with, with Damian Marley. We're, we're waiting for a specific usage. So, yeah, when you hear this, this is, you know, this is, you know, me loving the music, taking everything I learned from all those concert experiences from, from the Grateful Dead and from, from listening to how, you know, people should um, interpret cues from each other and put it all in, into two minutes and 30 seconds. Well, this is awesome. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm excited to hear it. I'm excited to share it. I'm excited for everyone to get out there in, in, in my, in, in, in our little listenership here. And, uh, yeah, no, this is, uh, this is extra bonus material, Stranger Stopping Strangers listeners. So let's, uh, let's go tear it up for two and a half minutes. We'll do the whole song and then, um, then we're going to come back and say goodbye. Yeah. Do it. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Rock on. 
goodbye this was so much fun i'm so glad we got a chance to do this so much fun thank you stacy thanks for offering me the opportunity it's, it, i mean you know how it is it's great to talk about your your favorite bands and just obsess and it you know you can't just talk people on the bus they like all right enough about the grateful dead thank you very much my wife too like please please can we talk about or play anything else but the grateful dead oh. Absolutely. Now, my husband's being very tolerant of it all. And the funny thing is, people ask me, like, does your husband like the dead? And I'm like, well, he did. <laughs> you know, he did. <laughs> you know, he did. He had a playlist. He <laughs> yeah. did. And I have just completely burned him out of it now. You know, like, he, he, he did like him. Like, he was kind of had a few songs. Then we started dating. And then it went from, like, a few songs to maybe 20 songs. Oh, you hit it from him. You hit it from him, did you? That's funny. That's funny. Uh, well, he kind of thought it was cute. Right. And, yeah, well, to your point, like, after 2015 I just became sort of a psycho and it was like something that was in me that was always alive just sort of went it didn't go away it just kind of like went into like a part of my life in the background where you know you have your your relationships and your family and your jobs and you know it's always my favorite music and always part of my spirit but wasn't part of my like day-to-day you know clothing and obsession <laughs> and you know like all of that kind of side eye again sweetheart okay yeah <laughs> totally like um you used to wear you know like cute little 90s and now you wear your old tortoise <laughs> you know the funniest is like i'm a fairly petite woman and i'll wear like my tortoise from when i was a teenager and people will be like they still fit and i'm like they were like men's mediums, you know, like, like there's nothing sexy about my high school tortees, you know, they were like that thick cotton, you know, short sleeve, you know, men's shirts. So yeah, I live in those now. And um, so uh, <laughs> it's the same. I think, you know, it just, it's just like you said, it, it reawakened a lot of those feelings. And you, I, I mean, it's to be fair, you know, when, when Jerry died and even a little before then, I mean, I kind of checked out around 92 or 93, um, mainly because of that Brent thing. And, and and then I, I saw my last show, like when I think their last um, tour through L.A. in 94. And then he yeah, I died that summer. So and for a lot of my friends, too, it, it, it got buried because it was it was too hard to talk about. And um, and then some like just like you said, like that, those um, those reunions or those um, 
uh, yeah, there's like reunion show, the 50th anniversary. I mean, it, it really reawakened a lot of feelings and people, I think going to those shows and then having those experiences where, you know, you give a ticket, you give a ticket or you hand out a miracle ticket and then, you know, someone kisses you later, a total stranger or hands you a poster or whatever, you know, people are, are just friendly to you. You were like, holy shit, I totally forgot about this whole, this whole um, vibe, this whole community. community. Yeah. And, and. And yeah, absolutely. I'm not letting go. Fuck no. We are. No, no, it's like coming home. Yeah, it was absolutely. like coming home. You know, it was like coming home. It was this whole reawakening. It's there's a there's a Facebook group that um, I belong to. One of many Facebook groups that I've been inducted into called um, Born Again Deadheads. And I just love that term, like the Born Again Deadhead, because that's how I feel like I am. Like I feel like, and a lot of times when people come back as a born again in any situation, you come back swinging even harder, right? Yeah. Like, you know, like I was this one strain, but now. I'm like this crazy super strain of whatever it was before so <laughs> it's uh yeah it's just it's coming back home and yeah I don't I don't think we're stopping anytime soon so it's it's food for our soul <laughs> for sure well thank you so much and I think we could talk for another two hours but I'm going to sign us off and uh and I can't wait till we meet again right on me too thanks very much Stacey and looking forward to seeing you next time okay bye bye I mean, Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.